Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. He was a soldier who fought and died for what he believed in and ultimately provided his family with a better life, which ironically was the goal of both loyalists and patriots alike. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Sarah Swift discussing her search for the life of Samuel Babcock. And she's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Sarah Swift, and she'll be discussing her research on the life of Samuel Babcock, a loyalist. Sarah Swift comes to us as a new writer here at the Journal of the American Revolution, and her first offering is a really good one. She focuses on the loyalist uh, Samuel Babcock, and she tries to trace parts of his life or elements of his life that we've lost along the way. Her article and this interview is a wonderful study for new historians in some of the challenges you may face in your research and how you overcome those obstacles. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Sarah Swift. Sarah Swift, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Tell us about your background. I was born in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I currently live in New York City. I'm a dual citizen, which I think gives me a unique perspective on the American Revolution. And if you can't tell from my article, I'm a big fan of alliteration. (laughs) Uh, I'm also a Meisner-trained actor. I've appeared in films, television, and theater, many Shakespearean productions, many Greek tragedies. I've written plays. And so my love for storytelling and the specificity required for my artistic craft transitioned me quite seamlessly into this world of historical research and especially genealogy. So when I'm not auditioning or rehearsing something, my nose is often buried in family trees and records and books, searching for the characters that exist in those worlds. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, without sounding too dramatic, the theater of war is indeed theatrical. (laughs) I've never come across a book or a movie for that matter about any war that was short in length. And because there's an ocean's worth of material to explore from the particulars of the battles to the personalities of the officers, the politics of the time, the supporting characters, and just the minutia of everyone involved. If you like stories, you should like history. And This particular chapter in history, I feel a very personal connection to. My home province of Ontario was in many ways founded by loyalists, and 
Living in New York City, I reside in a former Loyalist stronghold, a stone's throw from where many events in the revolution took place. So it's like living in history. And I think that's where my interest in it comes from. And that's really what prompted this work. Talk a little bit, if you could, about Loyalists' life after the war. Sure. So Loyalists existed in all 13 of the former American colonies. And some people have this idea that once the war ended, everyone was suddenly living in this democratic utopia when in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. In many cases, you were living next door to someone who was fighting for the other side. And now you have to find a way to move forward. Many people couldn't move forward. Loyalists experienced harassment, persecution, devaluation of their property, destruction and loss of their property, which the new government was not prepared to compensate them for. And many people found their lives intolerable in their own communities. So they were faced with a choice. Stay in this new republic with no way to make a living or support their families or journey north to resume living under the British flag. So in 1783-84, loyalists and discharged soldiers began arriving in what was then the British colony of Quebec and forming settlements west of the Ottawa River. And this region received such an influx that in 1791, it prompted the British government to establish the province of Upper Canada, which today we know as Ontario. Now, up until 1826, most settlers could petition for land so long as they took the oath of allegiance. However, Loyalist settlers had a special distinction, which made their sons and daughters eligible for free land when they came of age or married. So that process was a little more complicated, requiring formal petitions and affidavits to corroborate their families' claims of service. But in order to even get to that point, Loyalists first had to leave behind the only home they'd ever known, traveling with all their worldly possessions through forests without roads, through swampland where they lost horses, some had young children, some were of advanced age themselves, and if they survived all that, they then had to survive the brutally cold winters and begin the process of cultivating virgin land, which was backbreaking work. So nothing about being a loyalist in this time after the war was easy. How did you first encounter Samuel Babcock? Well, I'm very fortunate that in my work as a researcher, I have some clients who are descendants of United Empire Loyalists. So it began as a job tracing a client's ancestors. And when I got to the Babcocks, especially Samuel Babcock, I started finding all sorts of conflicting information, speculative evidence, and just outright misinformation. Um, you have to remember, we live in this amazing age where you no longer have to travel across the world to have access to primary documents. Many of them have been digitized and are freely available online. The problem is they don't always come with guides as to how to interpret the information. And thus many misattributions to Samuel Babcock and his family members and countless other soldiers and their families have taken place. And I realized if I'm going to provide an accurate biographical sketch of that family, I'm going to have to be incredibly meticulous in order to find out who he really was to make him more than just a name. Tell us about his life. Well, he was born about 1735 in Tappan, which today is Rockland County, New York. 
And up until 1798, Rockland County was part of Orange County, which is important to note. Uh, And that county was so named for William III, Prince of Orange, who ascended to the English throne in 1689. Now, Samuel was a simple laborer with skills as a lathe turner. And as a young man, he served in the New York provincial troops during the French and Indian War. One of the musters on which he appears describes him as just over six feet tall with brown hair and pockmarks. Now, this means he either had a full-blown case of smallpox at some point, which he survived, or he was inoculated against smallpox as a soldier. Now, this would prove to be a crucial detail later in his life. He was married to a woman named Rachel, and they had at least seven children. They raised them in Warwick, Orange County, and attended the Old School Baptist Church, led by Elder James Benedict. Samuel joined the Royal Standard in 1776, and he died in 1778. Now, these are details we know from his wife and his son-in-law's Upper Canada land petitions. And his family continued living in Warwick until 1790, which we know because his widow Rachel appears as head of household on the very first census of the United States. And the following year, the family left for Upper Canada. Uh, Samuel, as well as his son-in-law, William Lewis, served in the King's Orange Rangers, which was founded in 1776 by William Bayard, former colonel of the Orange County Militia, hence the name of the regiment, King's Orange Rangers. Samuel appears on the muster rolls taken at Paulus Hook, which is now Jersey City, in 1777, and at Fort Kinnephausen in February and April of 1778. And his final appearance is at the camp at Harlem in June 1778, where he died of an unknown cause. Now, while he could not have died from smallpox, another disease is a very real possibility. During the war, more soldiers would ultimately die from disease than from combat. So that's what we know about Samuel. Sarah, could you talk about your methodology of researching his life? The method is very simple. It's one step at a time. As I mentioned before, uh, the most difficult part of my job is not finding information. I'm sure you find this as well. It's combating misinformation, misinterpretations. So it's really best to just start from scratch. Uh, And first, I had to reconstruct his family unit to know where to look for clues. Obviously, this would be his wife, Rachel, and their children and their children's spouses. I then had to gather and examine any documents connected with their lives. And this is a process which took well over a year. Um, Church records, census records, muster rolls, petitions, and all this across three nations, the U.S., the U.K., and Canada, given when the events in their lives took place. But if you gather enough information, you can begin to make reasonable suppositions and start to paint a picture of someone's life. What sources do you believe were most helpful? Oh, um, the Upper Canada Land Petitions and the British Military and Naval Records held by Library and Archives Canada proved to be most crucial for this research. Colonial muster rolls circa the French and Indian War held by the New York Historical Society. Uh, Registers of the Reverend Robert James McDowell, who was missionary to Upper Canada from 1800 to 1841, held by the Ontario Historical Society. Also, this is a shout out, royalprovincial.com and discussions with Todd Braced, uh, its manager, who is a contributor to JAR and probably 
the preeminent historian when it comes to Loyalist studies, in my opinion. Also very helpful. So thank you, Todd. Um, there's countless others. Um, surprisingly, one of my best sources was the Revolutionary War pension application files. As I mentioned in the article, Samuel Babcock had a son-in-law, David Kelly, who served for the Continental Army, not the British. And that file corroborated many of the details about the family's early life in New York. So you never know where you'll find your answers. Just keep looking. <laughs> what would you say you ultimately discovered about him? Specifically, I discovered who Samuel was not. I learned he was not the Samuel Babcock who was serving in the 4th Battalion of New Jersey Volunteers at Staten Island at the same time. I learned he did not die from smallpox, given he was likely immune to the disease due to the pock marks we know he had from serving in the New York Provincial Troops. And distinguishing between the two Samuels, where previously their biographies had been conflated, allows us to better honor them and their service in the way they truly deserve. Ultimately, I discovered that if you just start looking from any point in the revolution, pick a person, pick a place, just pick somewhere to start looking, you will learn so much. The story here is that there are a thousand stories, and Samuel's story just happened to be my starting point. Sarah, what do you believe Babcock's legacy should be? He was a soldier who fought and died for what he believed in and ultimately provided his family with a better life, which ironically was the goal of both loyalists and patriots alike. And it might please him to know that many of his descendants are still living in crown-led country. Canada, though a fully independent nation, is still a member of the Commonwealth of the United Kingdom with the new King Charles III as our official head of state. His wife, Camilla, is a descendant of United Empire Loyalists, as her fourth great-grandfather served under Simcoe's command in the Queen's Rangers. Her third great-grandfather, Sir Alan Napier-McNabb of Dundurn Castle, was a pre-Confederation prime minister. So once again, we start with Samuel, a simple Loyalist private, and one story just leads to another. Sarah, how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? I think it's a great reminder that things are never as black and white as they seem. And more than helping us understand the revolution, I think it helps us understand the aftermath of the revolution and the great irony that the same people who built this country on the foundations of freedom forced their former neighbors and countrymen to either conform to their idea of freedom or find freedom elsewhere. Sarah Swift. Thanks again. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>